this self-creation, self-reliance, do it yourself, be yourself, decide who you are going to be yourself, that just idol of the autonomous individual, I think that it is not serving us well. I mean, the data bears this out. It's watering time, everybody. It's time for Apollo's Watered, a podcast to saturate your faith with the things of God so that you might saturate your world with the good news of Jesus Christ. My name is Travis Michael Fleming, and I am your host. And today on our show, we're having another one of our Deep Conversations. I loved growing up in a small town. My mom was from a small town. My dad was from a small town. But imagine my surprise when I found myself going to college in Chicago. I mean, it was a a bit of a culture shock. And I remember exploring the city with my roommate, who was from a smaller town than I was. We're walking down the street in Ontario and Clark. And there's a guy there with a, a table set up with a, a little briefcase open, and it's got all these, this jewelry displayed. And one of them was a Rolex watch. And I remember my roommate reaching in, grabbing it, looking it over, putting it back, had no interest, getting the eye really frustrated because he got fingerprints and smudges on it. And of course, one of our other friends ended up buying it so he could have a Rolex. But of course, it was counterfeit. It was fake, and it fell apart within just a a few days. We all know about counterfeits and fakes. I don't think, though, many of us realize that a lot of our counterfeits are actually within our culture. These are found within the ideas that we accept, the culture that we live in, and we accept it without even, even thinking about it. Today, we're starting a deep conversation with Jen Oshman. Jen is an author, speaker, former missionary, pastor's wife, mom, and as I found out in the conversation, grandmother. And she's especially engaged in women's ministry, and I'm talking to her today about her book, Cultural Counterfeits. Now, I know that some of my people just said, oh, it's about women's ministry. This doesn't apply to me. Don't stop the episode. Don't stop it. Because this episode is for everyone, and I kid you not. While her book may be largely targeted at women and the five cultural counterfeits that women face, the reality is is that most of what she's talking about applies to all of us, men and women. But if you need more convincing, how about this? If you're a dad of daughters, you need to understand the world that they're facing. Or you are married, you need to understand the world your wife is facing, even now, years later. If you're a pastor, you need to understand what the women in your church are dealing with. I mean, we get the idea. We all need to hear this conversation. But before we get to Jen, we do need your help. For the month of February, we're doing the 10 for 10 challenge where we are looking for 10 new watering partners who will give at least $10 a month to help water thirsty souls around the world. If you've been blessed by this show, then sign up. It's simply two coffees at Starbucks and that's it. Go to apolloswater.org, click the support us button, and by doing that, you're becoming a watering warrior, standing in the dry places, pouring out the water of life to bring water where life is languishing. Now, with that in mind, without further ado, let's get to Jen Oshman. Happy listening. Jen Oshman, welcome to Apollos Water. Thank you so much. Good to be with you. So are you ready for the Fast Five? I'm ready. Let's hear it. The thing that you missed 
when you were overseas was what? Chipotle. <laughs> That's a good one. That's Easy a good answer. Oh, nothing equivalent. No, nothing like that at all. Oh, not even close. Oh, okay. So how about number two here? Because you lived in Europe, Asia, and in North America. So okay. Europe or Asia? Oh, you mean if I had to go back? Uh, whatever you want it to mean. Oh my goodness. I can't pick. I can't. That's like trying to pick between children. I can't do it. That's easy. <laughs> I'm just That's kidding. Easy. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Okay. Well, how about if you had to go back? How about that? Let's go there. I think if I had to go back, my preference would slightly be Europe only because it feels practically next door in terms of travel compared to flying to the other side of the planet. So really selfish, silly reason. How long did it take you to get to Japan? Well, we served in Okinawa. So easily almost 30 hours every time to and from door to door. 30 hours? Direct flight? Yeah. Or no, none of those. (laughs) There's not like direct flights? Three flights all the time? Yeah. Did you have a pet with you by any chance? We flew a dog home from Japan when we moved away from there forever. So that was the only time. Uh, but you had kids, which is tough. We had four kids. Some, there was one point when I flew alone with three of them who were toddlers and babies. <laughs> so that was an adventure. Oh, my lands. I can't even imagine. Yeah. Okay. Well, number question number three. The one thing from Japan you wish Westerners would do. Okay. This is also sounds kind of silly, but it's true. And if you've been to Japan, you know, it's true. The customer service there is unmatched. I mean, the people who work in McDonald's wear like heels and stockings and gloves and hats. Like the, we would, my kids, whenever we flew home, they would always hope and pray that it was a Japanese airline, not an American airline. (laughs) It's just like this, like service orientation, this, Mm -hmm. how can I help you? What can I do to make your day better kind of situation in Japan at all times? And I do really miss that. What is it? This isn't one of the questions. I just have this as a question because I love this. What is the thing that you do in Japan when you take the hot towels and you mm. like wipe your hands and your face? What do they call that? Do you know? I do not know, but it's great. It's very I refreshing. I love it. I'm <laughs> trying to get my family to do it. And they look at me like I'm nuts. I'm like, I love it. It just gets me ready to go. There's just something beautiful about it. All right. Number four, if your life were a movie, what would it be called and who would play you? Oh my gosh, this one's impossible. (laughs) What would it be called? I mean, from where I'm sitting, looking at my life, I feel like the title would have to do with just the unexpected. I never thought I would live on three continents, didn't think I'd be a missionary, now an author. It's just been, the whole thing has been one big surprise. And I'm not sure who I would have playing me. I'm, I'm a, I have to admit, I'm not really a movie buff. I watch like one movie, maybe every three or four years. Whoa. I know. I know it's bad. I, I just don't do it. So I don't even know who the actresses are that I should choose from. No, that's <laughs> fine. I mean, I'm not even sure if I know. I'm still old school. I think you get older and it's weird to me that I like, I don't know any of the younger ones unless my kids know them. I don't know right. any of the younger ones, but mm-hmm. it's like, okay, who in your memory then? How about that? Like a memory you have of an older actress. I don't even know. Like Meryl Streep. Sure. Take it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure any of them would do a great job. (laughs) Okay. 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 A tall one? I'm six feet tall. We're going to need a tall actress. Oh, really? Yeah. So, So, you know, it's the qualification. It's crazy because my wife got me watching The Crown. Why do you like The Crown? Okay. So, so the, the, I don't know if it's season, I don't even know what season it is we're watching, but I know that Diana, 
I didn't know that Diana was like 5'11", 5'10", 5'11". Did you know oh, that? I didn't know that. I'm, yeah, she looks tall. Well, in the in the movie, Elizabeth Debicki, who's playing her, is 6'3". Oh my gosh. And she's wearing heels. And I'm like, what? And I'm like, why? I, I mean, I knew that Diana was tall and she does a great job. That, I mean, Elizabeth Debicki does. But that's tall. That's really mm. tall. I don't care that who you are. Really that's really tall. That's really I tall. almost never meet a woman taller than me. So 6'3", that's awesome. That's crazy. Was your, are your parents tall? My dad was six, six. My mom's just five, eight. So clearly okay. taken after my dad. I had a, I had a college roommate who was five eleven, but his mom was five, eight and his dad was five, three, but his dad's, his mom's brothers, she had two brothers. They were both seven footers. <gasps> what? <laughs> and she married a guy five, three. So it was like, <laughs> what? You think that your kids really be tall? Funny. Will your kids be tall? So my youngest, who's 15, is taller than me. She's the tallest. Wow. Yeah. So you had to have towered over people in Japan, I would think. Am I? Yes. Am I, no, you're right. And my husband's 6'5". And so actually, when we made the transition from Japan to the Czech Republic, it was really bizarre because we had been in Japan for 10 years. So for 10 years, we related to each other in crowded spaces by just making eye contact over the crowd. And then we get to the Czech Republic and it's the middle of winter and everybody's tall and wearing black parkas. And so I turned and talked to every man that wasn't my husband in every crowded situation. Are there that many guys 6'5"? It's Czech is tall. Yeah. Czech and Germany. Those, those are pretty tall countries. Well, I knew that Germany was tall because every time I fly internationally, I would encounter a German flight team and the, mm-hmm. the pilots and the, and the flight attendants. And every time I felt like a little kid, because I mean, I'm yeah. six foot, but that's, they're tall. They're tall. All yeah. right, here we go. Number five. The one thing that I do that most irritates my family is. <laughs> um, I think. I have this habit here. We live in Colorado now, which is obviously a gorgeous state to live in. Um, We grew up, the kids grew up in Okinawa, Japan, tropical island. Then we moved to Europe with a lot of medieval beauty. So a phrase that I have said routinely for many years now is, you guys feast your eyes, feast your eyes. I'm always telling them to feast their eyes. And I definitely get eye rolls because I guess I say it too much, but I can't help myself. Well, our kids, of course, pick up our habits and the words that we say, and then they repeat them back and they, oh, those are fun times. <laughs> My kids are always giving me a hard time. Anyway. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, let's get into, let's talk about a little bit about your story. I mean, you've alluded to it, but for those that don't know you or have not read the book, let's hear the Jen Oshman story because you've lived in a lot of places. You've given a great deal of bio in your work, but I know, and what I've learned is that you were converted at a young age, married at 20, been a missionary, podcaster, writer, mother of four, and wife to a pastor who's now an Acts 29 pastor. So besides that, (laughs) tell us a bit about your story. Yeah, that kind of sums it up. I was born and raised in Denver into a non-believing home. When my parents divorced at eight, my mom um, sought church out. And so thankfully at the age of nine, I heard the gospel and I believed, Um, but I wasn't, you know, in an environment that discipled me. So I can't say that I felt 
you know, truly surrendered to the Lord or had an understanding of what that was until I went away to college and the Lord really brought me to my knees as I cried out to him for just identity and healing and help and hope. And that's, you know, young adult season of life. Um, so it was right around the age of 18 when I experienced the call of God to overseas missions. And I had just met my husband. He did not live where I was. I was in college in Indiana. He was in Colorado. Um, and so we had this long distance friendship slash dating relationship for a few years where we both felt called to full-time ministry and over increasingly overseas missions. And so we did marry very young. We both come from a long line of divorce. And so that was kind of scandalous amongst our, you know, our people group, our family, but we had the, you know, sweet input of missions pastors who knew us really well and discipled us and gave us all kinds of premarital counseling and encouraged us, you know, if you feel the Lord calling, go ahead and get married. So we did. I was still in college, finished up. He was in seminary, finished up. And after a year of marriage, we headed overseas, had a newborn baby and had two more adopted a fourth. Um, we have a daughter who is our oldest daughter, but our newest daughter, she was 12 when we brought her home from Thailand to Japan. The other girls were three, five, and seven. So we have all daughters. Um, spent about a decade ministering to the American military in Okinawa, Japan. So our church there was four service members and their families. So we lived a very Japanese life in that, um, you know, all of our shopping and taxes and healthcare and stuff was Japanese, but our in-depth relationships and ministry was to Americans. So that was a really unique um, way to live. And then um, the catalyst that led from us moving from Okinawa, Japan to the Czech Republic is that my husband's mom was diagnosed with ALS and her dad had died from ALS right before we left for the mission field. So we had the crushing realization that my husband's family is one of the rare ones that carries the gene for ALS. And so though life and ministry was a pure joy in Japan, we just had that moment of going, you know, your life might be a lot shorter than we think it will be. What is it that you all, you, you want to do? What do you want to leave on the field? And he had always felt very burdened for the Czech Republic. He spent a semester in college in Prague and saw that though there were crucifixes and cathedrals on every corner, people truly did not know who Jesus was. Um, Jesus was a cuss word or the baby that brought you gifts on Christmas, but no concept of the gospel. Um, less than one half of 1% of Czech people know Jesus as savior. So a very dark place. And so he said, I want to go there. I want to preach Christ in the Czech Republic. So we made that massive transition um, only to be on the field for a couple of years before we were called home to care for my dad, who was dying from Alzheimer's and dementia and was very much alone without anybody caring for him. So we obeyed the Lord in that, relocated to Colorado, brought home these, you know, um, tweens and teens back to America, their first time living here ever. Um, so that was a huge transition. And we've been here seven years. Um, the Lord was gracious to plant a church out of our living room. Didn't see that coming. Um, but we now have an almost six-year-old church here in Parker, Colorado, a suburb of Denver. Um, and girls who are growing ages 15 to 25. So there you go. That's probably more than you wanted, but there it 25? is. 25? <laughs> There's no way you have a 25-year-old. Well, she's our oldest, right? The one That's we brought right. home as Still, a twelve-year-old. So twenty-five. Yeah. That's just crazy. Because you're, you're. I mean, I, I saw your birth year in there. You're younger than I am, and I'm like, yeah, twenty-five. Yeah, I, I, I say it's life in the fast lane. And she actually is married to a guy in the army, and they have two kids. So we are grandparents. What? <laughs> Don't yeah, do grandma. that to me, Jen. <laughs> I'm not ready. 
Oh, Same. I'm not ready. But oh, I'm not ready for that. I am not ready. Okay. All right. Now you've made me feel really old. Thanks a lot, Jen. I appreciate that. You're welcome. Okay. Well, let's get it. Hey, I actually have a couple of questions. Number one, when you were in, you mentioned in the book about your dad questioning you and you converted at a very young age. Yeah. Cause he, he was, he knew the implications. How did that relationship change over the years? I'm just very curious on that, especially yeah, so when you dad, came to his aid when he was dying. Yeah, it was a hard relationship. And I have to be honest and just confess that we didn't want to come home. I, I didn't want, I'm ashamed to say it, but it, I didn't really want to come home and do that. I wanted to stay in the Czech Republic. You know, we felt called to overseas church planting. Yeah. So my dad was an attorney. So a good arguer by trade. He was raised by atheists, only child. So really had a cold feeling toward matters of faith. So then when I surrendered my life to the Lord, you know, as a 10 year old telling my dad, I want to get baptized and him arguing with me over that and going to the pastor and making a profession of faith as this, you know, timid 10, 11 year old girl. I look back on that now and I'm like, holy cow, I can't believe, you know, that's what happened. But at the time the spirit was moving, the spirit compelled me. My relationship with my dad when it came to faith was one where we never saw eye to eye. And as we came back, you know, he was definitely grateful. Um, by the time we finally came home, I had been going back and forth from the mission field to my dad back and forth. And that was unsustainable. So we made the decision to move. By the time we got here, he, his Alzheimer's and dementia was pretty progressed. And so he was for sure thankful for our ministry to him, but also not able to really comprehend, you know, the various facets of that. Um, and he did pass away outside of the Lord about four years ago. Um, he, he died. So that was, you know, obviously traumatic for me. I feel like I had been preparing for that, you know, for 30 years, knowing since the time I was nine, 10, that if my dad dies without Jesus, it's going to be real bad. Um, and so it was a grief that had been observed for 30 years and it came to fruition 40 years ago. And obviously one I still carry with me, um, but the Lord was near to me and remains near to me and really impressed upon me that he is the God of my salvation. Even if my dad did not experience that joy and that freedom, I was rescued out of a really worldly upbringing. The Lord saw fit to reach down and rescue this little girl who had no hope of any kind. And I, um, I'm humbled by that and just grateful that, that I was rescued and redeemed, um, even though I was in a context that didn't make that likely. We're going to take a quick break and hear a word from our sponsors, and we'll be right back. The most important Bible translation is the one you read. At Apollos Watered, we use several different translations when we're studying, preaching, or teaching. But again and again, we keep coming back to the New Living Translation, the NLT. That's why we are excited to partner together. We are united in the belief that understanding the Bible changes everything. Because if you can't understand it, then you won't read it. We want you to know the God of the Bible, to water your faith so that you will water your world. That's why we recommend getting an NLT. It's the Bible in the language we speak. It's not foreign or complicated, but up close and personal. 
To save some money, go to Tyndale.com. Use the promo code NLT Bibles. It will give you 15% off. There's an NLT for everyone, from kids to adults, devotional Bibles, study Bibles, and so much more. Get one today because understanding the Bible changes everything, and the NLT is the Bible you can understand. You lost your father, and I lost my mother around the same time. So okay, it's. Yeah, I mean, it's weird being in, I don't want to say it's weird, but, you know, both both my parents are gone. And so mm-hmm. there is this yeah. strange feeling where my sister's grandchildren, my, my sister's, I'm the youngest, so my sister has her children or have children. So she's, you know, a grandmother and her grandchildren came to me and they said, can you tell me about when grandma was a, a little girl? And I thought, how old am I? Like, when did I get to this position of his family historian that I'm the older generation here? That's not right. Yeah, it's a weird thing. It is a weird thing. It's very strange. Very strange. Don't like it. But let's get to your book. I want to talk about cultural counterfeits. Now, I know you've got a couple of books out and sometime we'll have to come back and talk about the other book. But today we're going to talk about cultural counterfeits and award winner, by the way. That's right. Congratulations to you. Did you get a prize, like some stri- stipend or what? You know, just respect. That's pretty much what came with it. Just respect. <laughs> is there like any formal awards presentation or is it just out on Facebook? You're like, oh, I won. No, it's just a social media post, you know, so you just got to reshare that. And, and that's about it. <laughs> you, need, you need like more recognition with that. There needs to be like an award ceremony, at least even online award ceremony. And, and yeah. you know. And the book of the year, according to TGC, goes to Jen Oshman. I think, yeah, we're just this little niche corner of Christian publishing. uh, We're just, we're not quite like that. I know, (laughs) I know, but hey, all right. So we have cultural counterfeits, confronting five empty promises of our age and how we were made for so much more. So I've read the book and I got a lot of questions, just so you know. Okay. I've got, I've Thanks got a lot for of reading questions it. I appreciate you. Well, I mean, would I not read it? Do you actually have people? <laughs> actually, I know that. I know the answer because I talk to people all the time and they're like, yeah, I got interviewed. No, they didn't even read the book. <laughs> it and happens. It, it happens. <laughs> and they're like walking page by page, like chapter one. What did you? Oh, the acknowledgements. You know, it's like, no, come on. <laughs> So there's several things I want to hit though. So let's start off with your questions. You got to be ready for these questions. Okay. I'm ready. So let me start off here. Let's hear about why you wrote the book. Mm -hmm. Let's hear that. Let's give me, give me the impetus behind it. Why'd you write it? Yeah. So I, let's see my sweet spot. What I feel like is what the Lord made me to do when I feel his pleasure, what drives me, what really drives I would say most of my ministry is looking at our cultural landscape and interpreting it according to what scripture says. So I love to see culture, analyze it, and then apply the word of God to it. And I have been in women's ministry now for well over 20 years, and I have loved and served many women. And it's just been the joy of my life to come alongside them, introduce them to Jesus, disciple them, be discipled by them, be in community with them. So this book is born out of a couple decades of walking alongside women and observing the cultural counterfeits that most easily ensnared them ages, you know, maybe 15 to 70, (laughs) just what teen girls, young adult women and mature women see in, in our world, in society and feel drawn to. 
and give themselves over to consciously and subconsciously decisions that they make because of the cultural air they're breathing that see that, you know, are winsome and, and draw them in and myself included. I, I see myself in every chapter that I wrote. Um, I see my daughters, I see my friends, I see my mentors, we're all there. None, none is unscathed. So I wanted to address the five, you know, that the book could offend the 85 cultural counterfeits of our age, right? But I just went with the five that I felt like were the most pressing, the ones that I had seen be the most winsome, left the most carnage behind them, and just wanted to provide sociological data plus biblical truth. Here's why these counterfeits are lying to you. Here's the effect of giving yourself over to them. And then here is what is true in God's word. We were made for so much more, as the subtitle says. Your grace will be enough my eyes can see what you have prepared for me your grace will be enough and strength is rising as I wait patiently your words they come is rising Lift up your heads you weary souls Our God is not done yet Our King will come with the morning light bringing joy to the darkest of night so you've said you boiled it down to these these five. And you, as you said, it could be 85. So are these the issues that you think are the biggest obstacles for, for Christian women in the West today? Maybe. Yeah, I think they're the ones that, I don't know if they're the biggest obstacles. Maybe you could say it that way. They're the ones that right now just turn up over and over and over. Well, one of the things that you wrote in the book that I, I really enjoyed, you actually quoted, you quoted him several times, Rodney Stark, the sociologist and historian, who noted that one of the greatest gifts that Christianity gave its converts was its humanity. And I, I thought it was very interesting as you wrote that in there. Why is that an important thing for women and, and just all of us, really, to know today? I mean, what, why is that an issue that we need to be thinking about, like reconnecting with our humanity? Yeah. So Rodney Sark, I love what he writes. It's so helpful. He um, really opened my eyes to the early church, the first two centuries of the church and how that really revolutionized the cultural landscape when Jesus came on the scene and um, invited the weak and the weary and the broken and the heavy laden to experience rest in him um, and invited us to love our enemies and to pursue the marginalized and the vulnerable. That really revolutionized the Greco-Roman world. And what we see in early Christianity Christianity is those who were on the margins really being drawn to Christ. Of course, those at every level, really. I mean, we have, we see obviously the centurion and the wealthy and those in power as well being drawn to Jesus, but just women coming to him because in the Greco-Roman context, women were very much devalued, seen as property really to be used and disposed of as needed, not, not wives to be cherished or women to be protected or baby girls to be cared for. And so women were really drawn to Jesus. Um, I love how Glenn Scrivener puts it in his recent book, The Air We Breathe. He calls oh, hold it the, on. Hold on. Look at this. Look, 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 look. That with you? Yeah. Boom. It's, Boom. it's so good. He's yeah. coming on the show. 
Good. Anyway, yeah. Go. I, I think that's such an excellent book. Also a TGC award-winning book. I, I, he calls it the Jesus revolution. So that's what Rodney Stark opened my eyes to is that early Christians were drawn to Jesus, not only because of, but largely because of the humanity that was reinstilled in them, that they were seen for the humans that they are. It's like the image of God was re-seen, re-cherished, re-treasured as it should be. And so I see a lot of similarities in first century to 2023, 2022. Um, Women and girls are, again, largely commodified, largely viewed as only as valuable as they are sexy or sexually, you know, desirable or powerful in those ways. Um, And they're, they're seen as objects rather than as humans to be cherished and treasured. And so I love how he says, you know, Christianity brought their humanity back. I want to communicate to women and girls in this book. You are humans created in the image of God, immeasurably valuable and full of dignity because of your creator, your maker, your savior. I love how you did that. And you, you mentioned the five. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make sure that I get these five sure. right. Because before we go on, because we're going to address them one by one, I believe. So we have obsessed bodies, beauty, and ability. Two, selling out for cheap sex. Six, abortion is not delivered. Seven, I'm naming the chapters. Trending yeah. LGBTQIA+. Um, and then when marriage and motherhood become idols. So there, there's quite a bit there. Even reading it, seeing how there, those those are the five, right? Am I making sure? Those that are I the five. Okay. Those are the five I chose to write about. Okay. Yes. I was making sure that I had them in my head correctly. So one of the questions that I had is, you start off in this, the, getting into the early on, you talk about the sexual revolution meets me too. And there was a page, I think it was page 44. You brought up something that I'd never actually thought about. You brought up the court case. And I thought this was just very unique. Griswold versus Connecticut. And it was from 1965 that cited a right to sexual privacy in the constitution. That seems so passe today. But the way that you brought it out and you address something that I think many of us have lost today, and it's, I mean, why was that a big deal then? I guess that's what I'm trying to figure out for, or helping our audience to understand, because I think it has implications for now as a corrective. So what, why was it such a big deal then? Yeah, well, what we see in that case and then multiple cases that follow it, as I list on that particular page, is the legalization of birth control. So birth control is made then available to married couples. And then subsequent cases, you know, it's made available to single people. It's made available to teens. And we just see it on down the line through history. But the precedent that was set in that case is that, you know, the individual's pursuit of happiness includes the right to maintain privacy. So if what you want to do to be happy is something that is a private matter, then we, the constitution, then the Supreme Court decided that it's then protected. So prior to that, things like marriage and cohabitation and who you were having sex with and making babies with was a public matter. It was regulated by our judicial system, which I know is mind blowing in 2023. I mean, even as I say it, I'm like, I can't believe that. (laughs) And I'm not saying that that's all good. Like there's some things that clearly should probably be ironed out in that way of thinking. But the point is our country and our leaders and authorities understood that when you have sex, a baby results. 
And that child, as well as the mother who carries it, are worth some protection and care. And so laws were created to provide for the care and protection of pregnant women and children. So then when you start introducing things like birth control and then abortion and divorce and homosexual marriage, you know, that blows it all up. And there's no longer a legal structure that protects those who are the most vulnerable, which includes pregnant women and children. So now you can have sex without consequence, right? There's no, there doesn't have to be a family that brings up that child. Um, and, and we see, we see all of the terrible consequences of that now as many, many marginalized women and children, not to mention those who've been lost to abortion. So we have to go back and realize as a nation, we really prioritized autonomy and we, we, legalized it in in our code saying it's constant it's a constitutional right to pursue whatever you want and we're going to say that these are issues of privacy and if that's what you need to do to make you happy then it's legal but it's taking it out of the individual i mean it's putting it in the individual realm but we lost the collective understanding of it in that public responsibility i i just find that fascinating i i did a sermon years ago where it actually examined from i think it was 1965 they were analyzing young people on what their values were. And one was community engagement. That was number one. Fame was, there were 16 items on the list. Fame was number 15. And then you mm. flip that to like 2003 and it totally flip-flopped. Yeah. But I, I find that collective idea, that structure, that family structure is what I see so many people missing today. And that's why you, you get ideas like the modern family or family who your friends are and read definitions of it, but it still doesn't create the structures that we need to determine meaning and understanding who we are. And that causes people to be in many ways, shell-shocked, like you mentioned, like their identity, these idols that are destroying people and families. And, you, and as you've said, you see that all the time. So it's become even a huge, bigger, a, a greater understanding. How do we then recapture this idea, I don't want to say of collective, but this this idea of, of a, a responsibility that goes beyond individualism and it brings it back into the, the, the I don't want to say just the family, but the body of Christ. Like, how do we yeah. as Christians rediscover and embrace the structures that are necessary for the protection of the marginalized to ensure women being women and having that dignity and protected at the same time, which we know, of course, the recent scandals hasn't always been the case. Mm -hmm. Um but how do we recapture that? Yeah, I my first book prior to cultural counterfeits is called Enough About Me. And it examines just the idol of self and that we mm -hmm. live in the age of self. And so I have a lot of sociological data there that bears out the reality that this self-creation, self-reliance, do it yourself, be yourself, decide who you are going to be yourself, that just idol of the autonomous individual I think that it is not serving us well. I mean, the data bears this out. Mental health is alarmingly terrible. Um, depression, suicide, um, women are not well. I, I write for women. I know that men are not either, but the stats on female suicide and self-harm and addiction um, are climbing and they were climbing well before the COVID pandemic. So it's evident that the more we have transitioned from a collective identity and a group identity in terms of family and culture and community to deciding that we have to determine who we are and then we have to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and make that person happen and then keep that cycle going. We, we simply weren't created to bear up under that weight. I mean, that is the work of God. <laughs> that is not the work of frail humanity. So to answer your question, how do we get back to that? I think we are going to have to go through 
probably collective burnout where a collect a season where we as a people go, you know what, this radical individual autonomy is not working. We are broken and we are exhausted and we need more. And so my exhortation and cultural counterfeits to the church is be ready you know, be a porch light in a dark night, be a place of welcome where people are drawn and attractive to the warmth and the care and just the hug that is available literally and figuratively in your congregation and be ready. So I think, you know, Christians should not pull away from community involvement, but they should press into it and be ready. And I think it's coming. I really do. I think it's coming. You know, it's interesting. We had as a guest on the show, um, Michael Hendricks, who had written the book, Other Half of Church. And we talk about a relational reformation. And I had Kelly Capic on and we were talking about the, the you know, you're only human. That was his book. Mm-hmm. And, and, and talking about this humanity idea, you know, it's interesting. And I have this theory where if you go back and watch Jesus movies from the 1960s, the deity of Christ is so magnified at the expense of his humanity because we were wanting to be in touch with the deity, but with all of the inventions of modernity and we have the, at least the impression that we can be everywhere, know everything, do everything. And we've lost though, this idea of humanity. We're, as you mentioned, we're not able to bear it. So I think we're looking, we're trying to grasp for what our humanity is. And part of what we can do is help people embrace that. And you're doing that with women by confronting the idols that these ladies are, are, are have made, I don't want to say susceptible to, we're all susceptible to that, but have, have been easily enticed by. Yeah. Now you, you mentioned though, getting into this, this realm of sexual identity and as you, as it, you said in the book, sexual privacy, but you wrote something that I thought was very interesting on page 46. You said consent is now our only boundary, our only law, because the autonomous self takes priority over the common good. Why is that the only boundary left? And what does that mean for us? I, I think it's a train wreck. I it mean, is the a train more, wreck, yeah. you know, we are communal people. There's no not living in community. So when we seek out our own best preferences and we don't consider the needs of those around us, it just, it's not going to go well for the other people or ultimately for us as we alienate ourselves and draw away from that communal perspective, then we experience isolation and suffer as well. So Um, You know, and a lot of secular writers are picking up on this now, which I'm so grateful for. I see some really excellent books written by female authors out there that just criticize the fact that all we have left is consent, Um, because it turns out consent outside of marriage is really gray. And not everybody agrees to what was consenting and what wasn't consenting. So even this consent, you know, line that we've drawn in the sand is really flimsy and it gets crossed over all the time. And so, yeah, consent is, is flimsy. We need we actually need these these systems and institutions and structures that give us freedom. I know it's kind of a tiresome, you know, analogy, but it's the fish in water analogy, right? You know, a fish is not free when he's outside his fishbowl. He's dead. But he is free when he's in water to move around and be who he was created to be. And so when we as communal people demand independence and autonomy in our way only over and above others and harming others. That's not freedom. We will will suffer outside of the way we were created. It doesn't go well for us. I love the illustration. I know it's not unique to you. I mean, I mean actually, I had no idea. I had actually not seen the illustration where if I remembered it, oh, I went, cool. that's okay. so good. That was so good. <laughs> yeah, I was going to give you good. all the credit for it, it, but hey, no, not at all. Um, Going back for a moment on the individual versus communal, uh, you wrote, the story of humans has always been communal and never individual. We are a people who come from generations 
who come from the dusty of the dust of the earth in the breath of God, who we are has everything to do with whose we are. We belong to the Lord, our maker, and we belong to one another. Why is it so important for us to recover this communal nature? Well, a line that I use over and over in the book that you might've noticed is human well-being requires harmony with reality. So we will not be well if we don't walk in step with what is true and what is real. Right. And the Lord made us communal from the start. I mean, he is a communal God, um, three persons in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that image is pressed upon us. And it was not good for Adam to be alone. And Eve was created. We do belong to each other. And we always have. This is nothing new. We were made for community. So we've got to embrace that. We have to find a way to lay ourselves down, to lay our preferences aside for one another, for the good of the community. And we have programmed ourselves in 2023 in America to do the exact opposite. Um, And it's not just the United States. I think it's the West in general, the wealthy West, um, most for the most part, uh, much of Europe and then much of North America, because we have such extra income and wealth and health and security and safety and the options to pursue ourselves, we have the option to seemingly not need anybody else. And and we know deep down at a heart level, that's not really true, but I can pursue my own lifestyle and pull into my own garage and go into my own house and just be with myself. Whereas in other communities, other continents, other cultures, there's a need for your neighbor just for daily life and living and and sustenance. So um, that, that they're walking in reality and we are not. So um, we do need to recover that. Provocative words to end on. We were made for community, but in the wealthy West, we don't have to do community. At least that's what we think. We go into our homes thinking that everything's great. We, we just drive in, we, we put on our TVs, our little oasises, and we find ourselves so lonely. You know, when we think about the subject of poverty, we think of resource poverty. That's what often comes to our mind in developing countries. But they might be resource impoverished, but they are relationally wealthy. In our culture, we are resource rich, but we are relationally poor. We don't realize that all of the things that we have, all of these great gifts have actually separated us from one another. And we really, truly need one another. I can't help but think that the fact she lived in places where community was highly valued and then came back to the U.S. has helped her to see the cultural counterfeits that perhaps we don't spot as easily. Part of our Missio Holistic approach is both embracing global voices and engaging our own culture. And Jen's take reinforces to us that these two aspects are really intimately connected like peanut butter and jelly. It struck me as I looked at the book that all five of the counterfeits that she talks about have direct impact on men as well as women. It's just the expression that changes. When we look at these things, when we interpret the cultural landscape through the eyes of God, as Jen says, we do more than just gain information. We open ourselves up to be ready to be, as she said, the porch light on a dark night. And really, that porch light, that welcoming presence that cares for those in need is not just for those outside the church. It is also for those on the inside who have inadvertently bought the counterfeit. We've had quite a few episodes about identity issues and who we are. Kelly Capick and Alan Noble were two great conversations discussing these topics, if you haven't listened to them. 
when it comes to the body or being embodied Christians, we talked to Nancy Piercy and Tim Tennant and Sam Albury, just to name a few. In our next episode, we continue the conversation with Jen, touching on the way we view sex and personhood. We talk about the prodigal son, singleness, and the, quote, empty promise of purity, end quote. Wait, what? (laughs) You'll have to tune in to our next episode to unravel that. Make sure to check us out on our YouTube channel or connect with us through any of our social media pages. I wanted to thank our Apollos Water team for helping us water today. This is Travis Michael Fleming signing off from Apollos Water. Stay watered, everybody. 